13. And this success, great as it might at first appear, for the disgrace at once roused all the spirit of the Roman people, the treaty concluded by Alms was instantly annulled, immense exertions made to erase troops, and one of the consuls for the new year B.C. 109, Q. Sicilius Metellus, hastened to Numidia to retrieve the honor of the Roman arms, but this did not satisfy the people. The scandalous conduct of so many of the nobles had given fresh life to the popular party, and the tribune C. Mamilies carried a bill for the appointment of three commissioners to inquire into the conduct of all of those who had received bribes from Jugurtha. Scorus, though one of the most guilty, managed to be put upon the commission, but he dared not shield his confederates. Many men of the highest rank were condemned, among whom were Bistia, Albinus, and Ocimis. The last named was the Ocimis who acted with such ferocity toward Caius Gracchus and his party. He died in exile at Dirichim some years afterward, in great poverty. The consul Metellus, who was an able general and a man of the strictest integrity, landed in Africa, with Marius as his lieutenant, in B.C. 109. As soon as Jugurtha discovered the character of the new commander he began to despair of success, and made overtures for submission in earnest. These were apparently entertained by Metellus, while he sought in fact to gain over the adherents of the king, and induce them to betray him to the Romans, at the same time that he continued to advance into the enemy's territories. Jugurtha, in his turn, detected his designs, attacked him suddenly on his march with a numerous force, but was, after a severe struggle, repulsed, and his army totally routed. Metellus ravaged the greater part of the country but failed in taking the important town of Zemo before he withdrew into a winter quarters, but he had produced such an effect upon the Numidian king, that Jugurtha was induced, in the course of the winter, to make offers of unqualified submission, and even surrendered all his elephants, with a number of arms and horses, and a large sum of money, to the Roman general, but when called upon to place himself personally in the power of Metellus, his courage failed him, he broke off the negotiation, and once more had recourse to arms. Marius had greatly distinguished himself in the preceding campaign. The readiness with which he shared the toils of the common soldiers, eating of the same food, and working at the same trenches with them, had endeared him to them, and through their letters to their friends at Rome his praises were in everybody's mouth. His increasing reputation and popularity induced him to aspire to the consulship. His hopes were increased by a circumstance which happened to him at Utica. While sacrificing at this place the officiating priest told him that the victims predicted some great and wonderful events, and bade him execute whatever purpose he had in his mind. Marius thereupon applied to Metellus for leave of absence, that he might proceed to Rome and offer himself as a candidate. The consul, who belonged to a family of the highest nobility, at first tried to dissuade Marius from his presumptuous attempt, by pointing out the certainty of failure and when he could not prevail upon him to abandon his design, he civilly evaded his request by pleading the exigencies of the public service, which required his presence and assistance. But, as Marius still continued to press him for leave of absence, Metellus said to him on one occasion, You need not be in such a hurry to go to Rome, it will be quite time enough for you to apply for the consulship along with my son. The latter, who was then serving with the army, was a youth of only twenty years of age and could not, therefore, become a candidate for the consulship for the next twenty years. This insult was never forgotten by Marius. He now began to intrigue against his general, and to represent that the war was purposely prolonged by Metellus to gratify his own vanity and love of military power. 
he openly declared that with one half of the army he would soon have Jugurtha in chains, and as all his remarks were carefully reported at Rome, the people began to regard him as the only person competent to finish the war. Metellus at last allowed him to leave Africa, but only twelve days before the election, meeting with a favorable wind, he arrived at Rome in time, and was elected consul with an enthusiasm which bore down all opposition. He received from the people the province of Numidia. Although the Senate had previously decreed that Metellus should continue in his command, the exultation of Marius knew no bounds. In his speeches to the public, he gloried in his humble origin. He upbraided the nobles with their effeminacy and licentiousness. He told them that he looked upon the consulship as a trophy of his conquest over them, and he proudly compared his own wounds and military experience with their indolence and ignorance of war. It was a great triumph for the people and a great humiliation for the aristocracy and Marius made them drink to the dregs the bitter cup. While engaged in these attacks upon the nobility, he at the same time carried on a levy of troops with great activity, and enrolled any persons who chose to offer for the service, however poor and mean, instead of taking them from the five classes according to ancient custom. Meantime Metellus had been carrying on the war in Africa as proconsul BC 108, but the campaign was not productive of such decisive results as might have been expected. Jugurtha avoided any general action, and eluded the pursuit of Metellus by the rapidity of his movements, even when driven from Thila, a stronghold which he had deemed inaccessible from its position in the midst of arid deserts. He only retired among the Gaetulians, and quickly succeeded in raising among those wild tribes a fresh army, with which he once more penetrated into the heart of Numidia. A still more important accession was that of Bacchus, king of Mauritania, who had been prevailed upon to raise an army and advanced to the support of Jugurtha. Metellus, however, having now relaxed his own efforts, from disgust at hearing that Cimmerius had been appointed to succeed him in the command, remained on the defensive, while he sought to amuse the Moorish king by negotiation. The arrival of Marius B.C. 107 infused fresh vigor into the Roman arms. He quickly reduced in succession almost all the strongholds that still remained to Jugurtha in some of which the king had deposited his principal treasures, and the latter, seeing himself thus deprived step by step of all his dominions, at length determined on a desperate attempt to retrieve his fortunes by one grand effort, he with difficulty prevailed on the wavering Bacchus, by the most extensive promises in case of success, to company operate with him in this enterprise, and the two kings, with their united forces, attacked Marius on his march, when he was about to retire into a winter quarters, Though the Roman general was taken by surprise for a moment, his consummate skill and the discipline of his troops proved again triumphant, the Numidians were repulsed, and their army, as usual with them in case of a defeat, dispersed in all directions. Jugurtha himself, after displaying the greatest courage in the action, cut his way almost alone through a body of Roman cavalry, and escaped from the field of battle. He quickly again gathered round him a body of Numidian horse but his only hope of continuing the war now rested on Bacchus. The latter was for some time uncertain what course to adopt, but was at length gained over by Sulla, the quaestor of Marius, to the Roman cause, and joined in a plan for seizing the person of the Numidian king. Jugurtha fell into the snare, he was induced, under pretense of a conference, to repair with only a few followers to meet Bacchus, when he was instantly surrounded, his attendants cut to pieces, and he himself made prisoner and delivered in chains to Sulla, by whom he was conveyed directly to the camp of Marius. This occurred early in the year B.C. 106. L. Cornelius Sulla, 
the quaestor of Marius, who afterward played such a distinguished part in Roman history, was descended from a patrician family which had been reduced to great obscurity, but his means were sufficient to secure him a good education. He studied the Greek and Roman writers with diligence and success, and early imbibed that love of literature and art by which he was distinguished throughout his life, but he was also fond of pleasure, and was conspicuous even among the Romans for licentiousness and debauchery. He was in every respect a contrast to Marius. He possessed all the accomplishments and all the vices which the old Cato had been most accustomed to denounce, and he was one of those advocates of Greek literature and of Greek profligacy who had since Cato's time become more and more common among the Roman nobles. But Sulla's love of pleasure did not absorb all his time, nor enfeeble his mind, for no Roman during the latter days of the Republic, with the exception of Julius Caesar, had a clearer judgment a keener discrimination of character, or a firmer will. Upon his arrival in Africa, Marius was not well pleased that a quaestor had been assigned to him who was only known for his profligacy, and who had had no experience in war, but the zeal and energy with which Sulla attended to his new duties soon rendered him a full and skillful officer, and gained for him the unqualified approbation of his commander, notwithstanding his previous prejudices against him. He was equally successful in winning the affections of the soldiers. He always addressed them with the greatest kindness, seized every opportunity of conferring favors upon them, was ever ready to take part in all the jests of the camp, and at the same time never shrank from sharing in all their labors and dangers. It is a curious circumstance that Marius gave to his future enemy and the destroyer of his family and party the first opportunity of distinguishing himself. The enemies of Marius claimed for Sulla the glory of the betrayal of Jugurtha, and Sulla himself took the credit of it by always wearing a signet ring representing the scene of the surrender. Marius continued more than a year in Africa after the capture of Jugurtha. He entered Rome on the 1st of January, B.C. 104, leading Jugurtha in triumph. The Numidian king was then thrown into a dungeon, and there starved to death. Marius, during his absence, had been elected consul a second time and he entered upon his office on the day of his triumph. The reason of this unprecedented honor will be related in the following chapter. Chapter XXII. The CIMBRI and TEUDIOLANES. BC 113-101. Second Servile War in Sicily. BC 103-101. A greater danger than Rome had experienced since the time of Hannibal now threatened the state. Vast numbers of barbarians, such as spread over the south of Europe in the later times of the Roman Empire had collected together on the northern side of the Alps, and were ready to pour down upon Italy. The two leading nations of which they consisted are called Chimbri and Teutones, of whom the former were probably Celts and the latter Germans, but the exact parts of Europe from which they came cannot be ascertained. The whole host is said to have contained 300.000 fighting men, besides a much larger number of women and children. The alarm at Rome was still farther increased by the ill success which had hitherto attended the arms of the Republic against these barbarians. Army after army had fallen before them. The Chimbri were first heard of in B.C. 113, in Noricum, whence they descended into Illyricum, and defeated a Roman army under the command of Sion, Papiris Carbo. They then marched westward into Switzerland, where they were joined by the Tigurini and the Ambrones. They next poured over Gaul which they plundered and ravaged in every direction. The Romans sent army after army to defend the southwestern part of the country, which was now Roman province, but all in vain. In B.C. 109 the consul M. Junius Silanius was defeated by the Chimbri, 
In BC 107 the Tigurini cut in pieces, near the Lake of Geneva, the army of the consul Alcasires Longinus, the colleague of Marias, who lost his life in the battle, and shortly afterward Amorelis was also defeated and taken prisoner. But the most dreadful loss was still to come. In BC 105 two consular armies, commanded by the consul Sien, Malis Maximus and the proconsul Sien, Servilis Sapio, consisting of 80.000 men, were completely annihilated by the barbarians, only two men are said to have escaped the slaughter. These repeated disasters hushed all party quarrels. Everyone at Rome felt that Marius was the only man capable of saving the state, and he was accordingly elected consul by the unanimous votes of all parties while he was still absent in Africa. He entered Rome in triumph, as we have already said, on the 1st of January, B.C. 104, which was the first day of his second consulship. Meantime the threatened danger was for a while averted, instead of crossing the Alps and pouring down upon Italy, as had been expected, the Chimbri marched into Spain, which they ravaged for the next two or three years. This interval was advantageously employed by Marius in training the new troops, and accustoming them to hardships and toil. It was probably during this time that he introduced the various changes into the organization of the Roman army which are usually attributed to him. Notwithstanding the sternness and severity with which he punished the least breach of discipline, he was a favorite with his new soldiers, who learned to place implicit confidence in their general, and were delighted with the strict impartiality with which he visited the offenses of the officers as well as of the privates, as the enemy still continued in Spain. Marius was elected consul a third time for the year B.C. 103, and also a fourth time for the following year, with Culutatis Catulus as his colleague. It was in this year B.C. 102 that the long-expected barbarians arrived. The Chimbri, who had returned from Spain, united their forces with the two tomes. Marius first took up his position in a fortified camp upon the Rhone, probably in the vicinity of the modern Arles, and as the entrance of the river was nearly blocked up by mud and sand, he employed his soldiers in digging a canal from the Rhone to the Mediterranean, that he might the more easily obtain his supplies from the sea. Meantime the barbarians had divided their forces, the Chimbri marched round the northern foot of the Alps, in order to enter Italy by the northeast, crossing the Tyrol Alps by the defiles of Tridentum Trent, the Teutones and Embrones, on the other hand, marched against Marius, intending, as it seems, to penetrate into Italy by Nice and the Riviera of Genoa. Marius, anxious to accustom his soldiers to the savage and strange appearance of the barbarians, would not give them battle at first. The latter resolved to attack the Roman camp, but as they were repulsed in this attempt, they pressed on at once for Italy. So great were their numbers, that they are said to have been six days in marching by the Roman camp. As soon as they had advanced a little way, Marius followed them, and thus the armies continued to march for a few days, the barbarians in the front and Marius behind till they came to the neighborhood of Aquasexia. Here the decisive battle was fought, an ambush of 3,000 soldiers, which Marius had stationed in the rear of the barbarians, and which fell upon them when they were already retreating, decided the fortune of the day, attacked both in front and rear, and also dreadfully exhausted by the excessive heat of the weather, they at length broke their ranks and fled, the carnage was dreadful, the whole nation was annihilated, for those who escaped put an end to their lives, and their wives followed their example. Immediately after the battle, as Marius was in the act of setting fire to the vast heap of broken arms which was intended as an offering to the gods, horsemen rode up to him, 
and greeted him with the news of his being elected consul for the fifth time. The Chimbri, in the meantime, had forced their way into Italy. The colleague of Marius, Culutatis Catulus, despairing of defending the passes of the Tyrol, had taken up a strong position on the Aphysis Adige, but, in consequence of the terror of his soldiers at the approach of the barbarians, he was obliged to retreat even beyond the Po, thus leaving the whole of the rich plain of Lombardy exposed to their ravages. Marius was therefore recalled to Rome. The Senate offered him a triumph for his victory over the two tomes, which he declined while the Chimbri were in Italy, and proceeded to join Catulus, who now commanded as proconsul BC 101. The united armies of the consul and proconsul crossed the Po, and hastened in search of the Chimbri, whom they found to the westward of Milan, near Vercelli, searching for the two tomes, of whose destruction they had not yet heard. The Chimbri met with the same fate as the two tomes, the whole nation was annihilated, and the women, like those of the ten tomes, put an end to their lives. Marius was highly as the savior of the state, his name was coupled with the gods in the libations and at banquets, and he received the title of third founder of Rome. He celebrated his victories by a brilliant triumph, in which, however, he allowed Catulus to share. During the brilliant campaigns of Marius, Sicily had been exposed to the horrors of a second servile war. The insurrection broke out in the east of the island, where the slaves elected as their kin one Salvis, a soothsayer. He displayed considerable abilities, and in a short time collected a force of 20.000 foot and 2,000 horse. After defeating a Roman army he assumed all the pomp of royalty, and took the surname of Trifon, which had been borne by a usurper to the Syrian throne. The success of Salvis led to an insurrection in the western part of the island, where the slaves chose as their leader a Cilician named Athenio, who joined Trifon, and acknowledged his sovereignty. Upon the death of Trifon, Athenio became king. The insurrection had now assumed such a formidable aspect that, in B.C. 101, the Senate sent the consul Amachias into Sicily. He succeeded in subduing the insurgents, and killed Athenio with his own hand. The survivors were sent to Rome, and condemned to fight with wild beasts, but they disdained to minister to the pleasures of their oppressors, and slew each other with their own hands in the amphitheatre. Chapter XXIV Internal history of Rome from the defeat of the CIMBRI and TEUDOLENES to the social war. BC 191. The career of Marius had hitherto been a glorious one, and it would have been fortunate for him if he had died on the day of his triumph. The remainder of his life is full of horrors, and brings out into prominent relief the worst features of his character. As the time for the consular elections approached, Marius became again a candidate for the consulship. He wished to be first in peace as well as in war and to rule the state as well as the army, but he did not possess the qualities requisite for a popular leader at Rome, he had no power of oratory, and lost his presence of mind in the noise and shouts of the popular assemblies, in order to secure his election, he entered into close connection with two of the worst demagogues that ever appeared at Rome, Saturninus and Glaucia, the former was a candidate for the tribunate, and the latter for the praetorship, and by their means, as well as by bribing the tribes, Marius secured his election to the consulship for the sixth time. Glaucia also obtained the praetorship, but Saturninus was not equally successful. He lost his election chiefly through the exertions of Amanes, who was chosen in his stead, but Manes paid dearly for the honor, for on the evening of his election he was murdered by the emissaries of Saturninus and Glaucia, and next morning, at an early hour, before the forum was full, 
Saturninus was chosen to fill up the vacancy. As soon as Saturninus had entered upon his office B.C. 100 he brought forward an agrarian law for dividing among the soldiers of various the lands in Gaul which had been lately occupied by the Chimbri. He added to the law a clause that, if it was enacted by the people, every senator should swear obedience to it within five days, and that whoever refused to do so should be expelled from the senate, and pay a fine of twenty talents. This clause was specially aimed at Metellus, who, it was well known, would refuse to obey the requisition. In order to ensure a refusal on the part of Metellus, Marius rose in the senate, and declared that he would never take the oath, and Metellus made the same declaration, but when the law had been passed, and Saturninus summoned the senators to the rostra to comply with the demands of the law, Marius, to the astonishment of all, immediately took the oath, and advised the senate to follow his example. Metellus alone refused compliance, and on the following day Saturninus sent his beagle to drag him out of the senate house. Not content with this victory, Saturninus brought forward a bill to punish him with exile. The friends of Metellus were ready to take up arms in his defense, but he declined their assistance, and withdrew privately from the city. Saturninus brought forward other popular measures, of which our information is very scanty. He proposed a lex frumentaria by which the state was to sell corn to the people at a very low price, and also a law for founding new colonies in Sicily, Achaia, and Macedonia. In the election of the magistrates for the following year Saturninus was again chosen tribune. Glaucia was at the same time a candidate for the consulship, the two other candidates being Abantomis and Cememis. The election of Antomis was certain, and the struggle lay between Glaucia and Memis, as the latter seemed likely to carry his election. Saturninus and Glaucia hired some ruffians, who murdered him openly in the Comitia. All sensible people had previously become alarmed at the mad conduct of Saturninus and his partisans, and this last act produced a complete reaction against them. The Senate felt themselves now sufficiently strong to declare them public enemies, and invested the consuls with dictatorial power. Marius was unwilling to act against his associates, but he had no alternative and his backwardness was compensated by the zeal of others, driven out of the forum, Saturninus, Glaucia, and the quaestor Sophus took refuge in the capital, but the partisans of the senate cut off the pipes which supplied the citadel with water before Marius began to move against them, unable to hold out any longer, they surrendered to Marius, the latter did all he could to save their lives, as soon as they descended from the capital, he placed them, for security, in the Curia Hostilia, but the mob pulled off the tiles of the Senate House, and pelted them till they died. The Senate gave their sanction to the proceeding by rewarding with the citizenship a slave of the name of Seba, who claimed the honor of having killed Saturninus. Marius had lost all influence in the state by allying himself with such unprincipled adventurers. In the following year B.C. 99 he left Rome, in order that he might not witness the return of Metellus from exile, a measure which he had been unable to prevent. He set sail for Cappadocia and Galatia under the pretense of offering sacrifices which he had vowed to the Great Mother. He had, however, a deeper purpose in visiting these countries. Finding that he was losing his popularity while the Republic was at peace, he was anxious to recover his lost ground by gaining fresh victories in war, and accordingly repaired to the court of Mithridates, in hopes of rousing him to attack the Romans, the mad scheme of Saturninus, and the discredit into which Marius had fallen had given new strength to the Senate. They judged the opportunity favorable for depriving the Equites of the judicial power which they had enjoyed, with only a temporary cessation. 
Since the time of C. Gracchus, the Equites had abused their power, as the Senate had done before them. They were the capitalists who farmed the public revenues in the provinces, where they committed peculation and extortion with habitual impunity. When accused, they were tried by accomplices and partisans. Their unjust condemnation of Rutiles Rufus had shown how unfit they were to be entrusted with judicial duties. Rutiles was a man of spotless integrity, and while acting as lieutenant to Cumutus Scavola, proconsul of Asia in B.C. 95, he displayed so much honesty and firmness in repressing the extortions of the farmers of the taxes, that he became an object of fear and hatred to the whole body. Accordingly, on his return to Rome, a charge of malversation was trumped up against him. He was found guilty, and compelled to withdraw into banishment B.C. 92. The following year B.C. 91 witnessed the memorable tribunate of M. Livius Drusus. He was the son of the celebrated opponent of C. Gracchus. He was a man of boundless activity and extraordinary ability. Like his father, he was an advocate of the party of the nobles. He took up arms against Saturninus, and supported the Senate in the dispute for the possession of the judicial power. His election to the tribunate was highly by the nobles with delight, and for a time he possessed their unlimited confidence. He gained over the people to the party of the Senate by various popular measures, such as the distribution of corn at a low price, and the establishment of colonies in Italy and Sicily. He was thus enabled to carry his measures for the reform of the judicia, which were, that the Senate should be increased from 300 to 600 by the addition of an equal number of equites and that the judices should be taken from the Senate thus doubled in numbers. Drusus seems to have been actuated by a single-minded desire to do justice to all, but the measure was acceptable to neither party. The senators viewed with dislike the elevation to their own rank of 300 equites, while the equites had no desire to transfer to a select few of their own order the profitable share in the administration of justice which they all enjoyed. Another measure of Drusus rendered him equally unpopular with the people. He had held out to the Latins and the Italian allies the promise of the Roman franchise. Some of the most eminent men of Rome had long been convinced of the necessity of this reform. It had been meditated by the younger Scipio Africanus, and proposed by C. Gracchus, the Roman people, however, always offered it the most violent opposition. But Drusus still had many partisans. The Italian allies looked up to him as their leader, and loudly demanded the rights which had been promised them. It was too late to a retreat and, in order to oppose the formidable coalition against him, Drusus had recourse to sedition and conspiracy. A secret society was formed, in which the members bound themselves by a solemn oath to have the same friends and foes with Drusus, and to obey all his commands. The ferment soon became so great that the public peace was more than once threatened. The allies were ready to take up arms at the first movement. The consuls, looking upon Drusus as a conspirator, resolved to meet his plots by counterplots. But he knew his danger, and whenever he went into the city kept a strong bodyguard of attendants close to his person. The end could not much longer be postponed, and the civil war was on the point of breaking out, when one evening Drusus was assassinated in his own house. While dismissing the crowds who were attending him, a leather cutter's knife was found sticking in his loins, turning round to those who surrounded him. He asked them, as he was dying, friends and neighbors. When will the Commonwealth have a citizen like me again? Even in the lifetime of Drusus the Senate had repealed all his laws. After his death the Tribune Cuveris brought forward a law declaring all persons guilty of high treason who had assisted the cause of the Allies. Many eminent men were condemned under this law. This measure, following the assassination of Drusus, 
roused the indignation of the Allies to the highest pitch. They clearly saw that the Roman people would yield nothing except upon compulsion. Chapter XXV. The Social O.R. of A.R.S.I.C. War. B.C. 9089. Rome had never been exposed to greater danger than at this time. Those who had been her bravest defenders now rose against her, and she would probably have perished had the whole Italian people taken part in the war. But the insurrection was confined almost exclusively to the Sibelians and their kindred races. The Etruscans and Umbrians stood aloof, while the Sabines, Volscians, and other tribes who already possessed the Roman franchise, supported the Republic, and furnished the materials of her armies. The nations which composed the formidable conspiracy against Rome were eight in number the Marcians, Pelignians, Marusinians, Vestinians, Pisentines, Samnites, Apulians, and Lucanians. Of these the Marcians were particularly distinguished for their courage and skill in war, and from the prominent part which they took in the struggle. It was frequently termed the Marsic as well as the Social War. The war broke out at Asculum in Pisanum, the proconsul Q. Servilis who had the charge of this part of Italy, hearing that the inhabitants of Esculum were organizing a revolt, entered the town, and endeavored to persuade them to lay aside their hostile intentions, but he was murdered, together with his legate, by the exasperated citizens, and all the Romans in the place were likewise put to death. The insurrection now became general. The Allies entered upon the war with feelings of bitter hatred against their former rulers. They resolved to destroy Rome, and fixed upon Corfinium a strong city of the Pelagni, to which they gave the name of Italica, as the new capital of the Italian Confederation. The government of the new republic was borrowed from that of Rome. It was to have two consuls, twelve praetors, and a senate of five hundred members, Q. Pompidius Silo, a Marcian, one of the chief instigators of the war, and C. Papis Mutilus, a Samnite, who cherished the hereditary hatred of his countrymen against the Romans, were chosen consuls. Under them were many able lieutenants, who had learned the art of war under the best Roman generals. The soldiers had also served, in the Roman armies, and were armed and disciplined in the same way, so that the contest partook of all the characters of a civil war. But the Romans had the great advantage which a single state always possesses over a confederation. Of the details of the war our information is meager and imperfect, but in the military operations we clearly see that the Allies formed two principal groups the one composed of the Marcians, with their neighbors the Marusinians, Pelignians, Vestinians, and Pisentines, the other of the Samnites, W.